Hi, I'm Randy Kleiner. And I'm Kaylee Smith-Westbrook. As the co-founders of Series Fest, we welcome you to Breaking In, a Series Fest podcast. In 2015, Series Fest began its mission to champion and empower artists at the forefront of episodic storytelling by providing year-round opportunities for creators and industry experts to connect, collaborate, and share stories. We are thrilled to expand our mission with this podcast as we talk to working professionals in television and gain insight, advice, and hear their journey of breaking in. Today, Kaylee and I are speaking with Emily Best, the founder and CEO of Seed and Spark, a platform that makes entertainment more diverse, inclusive, connected, and essential. Seed and Spark's platform and national education program have helped thousands of bold storytellers raise millions to bring to life entirely new stories. And Seed and Spark delivers those stories into workplaces for employee training, engagement, and intelligence through their proprietary impact screening platform. They gather the qualitative and quantitative data essential for driving lasting structural change for inclusive and productive workplaces. Prior to Seed and Spark, Emily produced and acted in theater in New York, which led to Best producing her first feature film in 2011, Like the Water, co-written by and starring Caitlin Fitzgerald. The challenges and triumphs of that experience led her to found Seed and Spark. An advocate for diversity and inclusion in the entertainment industry, Best regularly speaks at conferences and events about leveraging entertainment to build equity and sustainability for everyone. Best was named a 2013 IndieWire Influencer, a 2014 New York Business Journal Woman of Influence, a 2015 Upstart 100 Entrepreneur from Business Journals, received the Ivy Film Innovator Award in 2015, and in 2016 graduated from Techstars Boston. Best has raised millions of dollars in traditional funding, equity crowdfunding, and rewards-based crowdfunding, and has personally participated in more than 300 crowdfunding campaigns. Hi, Emily. Hi, friends. How are you? Uh, you know, I'm fine. I sur- I'm surviving. That should count for something. Well... Thank you for joining us. I have so many questions for you. There's so much to talk about. I think you've had such an interesting career and you do so many different things. But I thought we would actually start with Seed and Spark, which you co-founded. And I would just love for you to tell us what is Seed and Spark? Why did you found it? Um, let's start there. Yeah, I mean, I, I that answer can be a very relative length depending on um, kind of what mood I'm in. But I will say that... Um, Today, Seed and Spark is a platform designed to shift power to communities through creativity. We have very we have three very specific things we do, and then I'll talk about how that actually ladders up to the larger mission. We have an international education program. We teach hundreds of live workshops a year to tens of thousands of creators to help them build uh, sustainable careers. That's really what we're interested in. Um, we have the world's number one crowdfunding platform, highest campaign success rate, highest project size, most diverse pipeline of creators in the world. And that's really where creators can resource their projects and start to build that real meaningful direct connection with their audience. And then um, we've gone through a lot of iterations of how we distribute the work that comes to our platform. But in 2020, we were able to take a little program that we had started piloting in 2019 that we thought would not survive the pandemic and blow it up into a business. We launched Film Forward, and Film Forward is a corporate education and training program built around short and feature films. And so we found a way to deliver 
films into workplaces with the specific purpose of individual organizational and societal change. Um, so when I, my dog's weighing in, he's like, I've heard this 17 times today. So when I say we're here to shift power to communities through creativity, we have a, we have a specific perception of what power means and what shifting power really means. So first and foremost, the most important thing is representation. Communities have to be able to tell their own stories and their own voices, but representation alone is not enough, especially in a time when algorithms are dominating absolutely everything we are marketed and that we watch. And therefore, most content is being delivered very efficiently to people who already look like us and already think like us. And it's creating these intense content silos. It's a really, really difficult thing to break out of. So shifting power to communities starts on the education and the crowdfunding side. That's about resourcing. That's about creators being able to tell their stories in their own voices and build meaningful career equity for themselves and their communities. So shifting jobs, shifting resources. 80% of what gets raised in crowdfunding on our platform, our creators tell us, goes to pay wages for people making movies in their communities, right? So it is about shifting real material resources, right? Um, but if that representation just stays in the people who look like us and agree with us, it doesn't do the additional job of powering um, uh, social power and political power, right? So if creativity can really reach across and build bridges and build empathy, that's when creativity starts to shift also social power and political power. And that's why we deliver films into workplaces, which are the most diverse place most people are in their lives. You can deliver films directly to people who um, don't look like us, don't think like us, right? Who no set of algorithms would ever reach. And like, I'm, I probably win no friends in saying this. Like, I don't believe that movies are magic. That they get made, absolute magic. Having done it many times myself, like, it is magical to get a movie made. But sitting someone down in front of a movie and expecting them to have a massive transformation, I think is too much pressure to put on a piece of content, frankly, of any kind, no matter how well told a story is. There are, of course, circumstances where you're like, oh, that one movie changed my life. But it's not a seamless experience for everyone. So we build curriculum around the films that really speaks to um, the, the cultural uh, progress that a filmmaker is trying to enact when they're telling a certain kind of story. So like, I don't think you just, for most people, um, one exposure to trans representation is not going to completely shift your mindset about how to treat trans people around you. You have to be taught those skills. So that's really what we combine is the catalyst of the film where the representation can break you open and start to build empathy. But then you actually need to be given real skills and behaviors to start to learn what to do with that new feeling. Um, and so that's the sort of whole ecosystem of what we're doing today. So going back to kind of why you started Seed and Spark, because you started mostly as a crowdfunding platform to start with. Can you talk about kind of what that was that was like and, and what your reasoning for it? Because there were things like Kickstarter and Indiegogo out there, but you obviously came to serve a very specific need um, and I think uh, really came into the scene to do something really unique. And I'd love you to tell a little bit of that story. Sure. Uh like, I didn't mean to be a founder and I never meant to get into the entertainment business is the honest to God truth. 
I was like very happy and broke making downtown theater <laughs> in New York shit that like nobody was going to see, but boy, was it fun. Uh, but it was the summer I was producing a play um, called Hedda Gabler for the theater nerds out there. It's like Hamlet for women. Every actress of a certain age wants to play that role at some point, right? And um, Caitlin Fitzgerald, who was like arguably way too young to be playing the role, but did it brilliantly, um, was playing that role at night. And during the day, she was being asked to audition for all of these indie movies from like big name directors um, and almost exclusively being asked to audition for Pretty Girl, Pretty Girlfriend, Pretty Best Friend, Hot Best Friend, etc. And I would say I was, I was, 30 years old before I looked up on the big screen and was like, who are these women that they're feeding us? Like, why are they so one dimensional? Why are they so obsessed with, you know, getting a man? Why are they so competitive with their girlfriends? Like all of a sudden it was like the, as the ones and zeros started to appear. Um, and I, so that summer we committed to making a movie just to show a different side of women's friendships and how fortifying they are and how much they grow us and how complicated and beautiful they can be because that's what we were experiencing as a team of women making this work together. That was it. That was all I wanted to do. Make one movie, change the perception of uh, women friendships. So I definitely at that time thought movies were magical and I would make this movie and everybody would change the way they thought about women's friendships. And when we started to try to make this movie, I would just learn firsthand about every institutional barrier up against somebody trying to tell a different kind of story or trying to combat some very traditional biases in, in how, how and why we tell our stories. Um, and, you know, sales agents and distributors were basically like, there's no audience for movies about women. <laughs> And certainly not women friendships, because like those aren't real. Um, and it just like <laughs> it was funny because I remember the first time I heard that was at, at it was by a sales agent at American Film Market. And that's the place that like this is supposed to happen for the globe. Like these are the people who are supposed to know. And I looked at him and I was like, oh, you don't know. And because you don't know, you have to say it doesn't exist. Hmm. And that was like really empowering for me because I was like, cool. I'll just go do the stuff that you don't know about and that will make you irrelevant to me anyway. <laughs> um, and that was really, I mean, honestly, like that was a big catalyst for me was just understanding that the infrastructure of the business was not built to get new stories told and we were going to have to build new infrastructure. Crowdfunding was really important to me, but crowdfunding at that time, you know, crowdfunding in its like modern iteration, the sort of Kickstarter Indiegogo rose out of the ashes of the 2007, 2008 financial crisis when like a lot of artists could no longer ask their rich dentist uncle for a check to make their work. Right. Mm. And they turned to crowdfunding, which worked great if you came from a well-resourced community that was like less impacted by things like economic downturns doesn't work so well if you come from an under-resourced community or simply that your community is not super familiar with arts patronage, for example, right? So how could we make something that actually worked no matter where you came from as a, as a starting point, as a jumping off point where creators from anywhere could legitimately resource themselves? And that was really the task we set ourselves to when we launched Seed and Spark. I think that's really what set us apart from the beginning. But that's also why we had to turn to education first and foremost, um, because this was not about people just using crowdfunding like they saw it used elsewhere. We had to like really dig in and help give creators the tools for building that direct sustainable relationship with their audience that they could then monetize because they couldn't just rely on their friends and family to pony up the cash as was so much more common in the crowdfunding space. I was curious. I mean, you know, again, 
kind of the rise of Kickstarter and Indiegogo, I mean, was pretty product focused mm-hmm. and obviously movies are product, but a little yeah. bit different, um, you know, and community is so important to Seed and Spark. How was it easy in the beginning to get people to buy into this concept of platform? No. <laughs> How did first you do all, it? <laughs> first of all, the platform sucked. Like the first version of the platform like barely worked. The fact that anybody stuck by us was absolutely amazing. Um, we didn't have funding. We didn't have press. We had shitty tech, like it's a miracle. Um, and that's why we built the brand in person building community. So like what I know as is how to bring a room full of people together and get them really excited about ideas. And, and that was the, that was really the springboard for us is building this education program. Erica Anderson, one of the original co-founders, um, she and I like whiteboarded a workshop that we in 2000, what year is it? 2013, that we still teach a version of which we still teach today called crowdfunding to build independence that really is helping people understand that crowdfunding is fundamentally not about fundraising it is about community building and that was also like very much focused on the 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 impact we were trying to have which was to help people really build power in their communities and so we went we weren't teaching this sort of armchair shit from New York and LA we like drove across, we drove across country, um, and taught anywhere that would have us and partnered with nonprofits, arts organizations, film festivals, state and local film offices, anybody that would have us to be perfectly honest. And, um, what we were really doing that during that time was we were learning, like we were learning about the barriers that were being faced by creators in all sorts of different communities. And then we built towards that. So when we could finally build functional technology, we were building with a really different, kind of customer in mind. I'm curious as a creator, if I have a film and I'm nervous about, you know, crowdfunding or what to do, or even maybe I have some of the money and I'm trying to figure out what to do, what would the steps be on Seed and Spark versus if I decided to go to like, you know, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, like, and what, what, what's that process like in all the steps that, that you give? Um, the first thing we're going to do is send you through a set of videos to really help prep you for what to expect in crowdfunding and what all the components are of a successful crowdfunding campaign. And we're going to connect that to the long-term downstream benefits of really making an effort to build a direct relationship with your audience, just like making a movie is all in the prep. So too is making a great crowdfunding campaign. So generally speaking, um, what you'll experience with us that's probably different from other platforms is we'll walk you through the steps. We'll give you tips along the way of how to set your budget, um, how to think about your pitch video. And then you're going to submit all that to us. And a real crowdfunding expert is going to go through every single thing you submitted and send feedback to you to make sure you are really actually set up for success on your pitch video, on your incentives, on your budget size. And it is not uncommon for us to go back to creators and be like, I don't think you have built enough community to raise the amount of money that you are asking for. Here's some tips on how to go build that community. We recommend you do this again in like two months. Like go out and do this work. And we have countless stories of creators who were like, I was so mad to get that feedback and you were so right. <laughs> um, uh, so, and that really speaks to our high success rate, right? Like we're not afraid to say to you, no, like you, you've got, you can't get out of doing this work. Look, we cannot solve for all of society's hurdles, but we have built a fuck ton of workarounds for that anyone can do, anyone can follow. 
it's work. Like pure and simple people want as a person who has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars in crowdfunding. And I just looked like $5.7 million in equity capital. There's nobody on the planet who wants a shortcut to fundraising more than I do. Hmm. There's no, there's none that exists. It is hard work. It takes tremendous preparation. It takes community building and audience building and partnership building. But if you do it around community building, audience building and partnership building, that lasts you forever. Pulling down one check from one person might mean nothing to you downstream, might mean nothing to your career downstream. Building a reason, like a real community and an audience with every chunk of money you raise that's priceless. And that grows your entire career equity with every step. And that's just like a much more uh, efficient use of your time, in my opinion. How do you build a community? I, you know, you and I had a conversation many years ago at Series Fest because I had uh, raised money and produced undeveloped a feature film. And we had talked about like, start creating the community now. Like there's stuff we could be doing. And in my head, I was like, well, yeah, but I'm going to sell it. I'm going to get into a festival and I'm going to sell it. And my distributor is going to do all that work and I'm not going to have to do anything. And we were very lucky. You know, we did go to a festival. We did sell out of the festival and I had an amazing distributor, but I had no community and my film came out and, you know, it was on Netflix and it's, you can get it on iTunes and Amazon or whatever now, but I didn't have the community. So we started this whole social media campaign and it didn't go anywhere. And it was such a waste of money and it was such a bummer because it was a cool idea. And I had like big people, people and influencers behind it who posted, but nothing happened. How at that stage do you go and build community? Community is built one person or one partnership at a time. Um, it is about building real relationships. It's not about sort of some inauthentic kind of networking thing. You have to be offering something to a community that they want. Here's one of my favorite, my most favorite examples. Um, there's a web series called Distance made by a creator named Alex DeBranco, who I think has been at your festival a few times. So one of my favorites of all time, this story was... Alex ran a crowdfunding campaign, a quite successful crowdfunding campaign on Seed and Spark. And he was doing all these fun, dynamic things. He's really funny. He's like very, very good at being funny online. And when he went to build his community, he was primarily using Instagram, kind of a millennial Gen Z audience. And he was like posting stuff from like behind the scenes uh, from his shoot and like introducing people to the actors and introducing people to the subject matter and whatever. And it was going nowhere. And I remember he called me and he was like, okay, I got to talk to you. I am good at social media and I'm falling flat on my face. What is happening? And honestly, I think it was like at that time, our bad advice to be saying to creators, oh, like people want to peek behind the curtain at your project. Like, no, they don't. They want to peek behind the curtain at Star Wars. They don't want to peek behind the curtain <laughs> in the thing that you're shooting in your house that means nothing to no one, right? Like they just right. don't. So, right. so what is it that they're actually there for? Well, they're there to participate in the telling of a story that they feel like really represents them or resonates with them. So Alex and I were like, we had ice cream in downtown Los Angeles in the arts district. And we were sitting there, it was melting, it was hot as hell down there. And, um, and he was just like, he was like, I'm good at this. Like, what am I missing? And I said, you know, it's really interesting. You did something during your 
crowdfunding campaign that I loved, which is, so distance is about a long distance relationship. And each episode is shot twice, once from his perspective and once from her perspective. And a lot of the comedic hijinks gets to be when you watch each episode and see how different the experiences really were. And one of the things he did during his crowdfunding campaign to engage people is he talked to real, to to couples that had actually done long distance and asked for tips for maintaining long distance relationships. And it was sweet and charming. It was real life. And it, it grounded this imaginary series in real life. And I was like, why don't you do more of those? Like, if you think about it, your social media has got to be for your audience, not at them. Mm. Right. And I didn't really know what I meant by that. It sounded smart at the time. I was like, yeah, that sounds good. Alex took that shit and ran with it so hard. And he did like a tremendous amount of research to find out, well, where do long distance relationship people hang out online? And the answer turned out to indeed be Instagram on the hashtag LDR, long distance relationship. So he started posting content as a participant in the long distance relationship community. Not, hey, you, I want you to come over and watch my thing, but like, let's have a conversation. Let's make my social media a space for people in long distance relationships to gather. And all of a sudden it went from like his 20 friends liking all his posts to hundreds of comments because he was starting to really engage his community about their personal experiences. He would feature couples from the community on the social media. So when that when the series finally launched, he had a massive audience to tap into. It ended up in the New York Times. It ended up in IndieWire's, you know, best of. It was also brilliantly made. Um, it, it really, like, took hold. And there was enough chatter about it to, like, get the notice of these big publications and, and awards. It was nominated for a Gotham Award. So um, that's, that's kind of my favorite story about you really have to think of your – what space are you making for the community? What conversation are you inviting them to have that, that asks them to engage with you? Because like people just like, just looking at photos of like the inside of a house that you're shooting in. I don't like, why is that interesting? Like, it's like being on a million zoom calls at this point. Like I see your house now I've seen a thousand of them and I'm like less interested anymore. I'm like, Oh, nice house plant, whatever, move on. You know? So I, I think it's, um, it's really asking yourself the question, like, what am I trying to say? And who do I think it will matter to? And how can I engage them in the conversation? I think that's such brilliant advice and actually kind of something new that I haven't heard before and um, just a really different approach to crowdfunding. And I think you're absolutely right. Like the behind the scenes, especially in an indie set is really- so boring. It's not all that interesting. (laughs) And I love that story. And and we love Alex too. So uh, so uh, shout out, Mr. DeBranco. I wanted to ask, you know, we started and I was thinking about his story and how unique it is. And, and, you know, we started this by you telling us, you know, you were trying to create a female driven story that was unique. What have you seen kind of an evolution of the stories being told now? Do you see any kind of thematic through lines, you know, different kind of creative perspectives happening now? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I was thinking about it in light of the the. (laughs) I don't know if it's debate exactly, but like a sort of fair criticism that's being leveled in the heights, right, which is taking up so much space, right? But there's a a real conversation about the lack of diversity of the cast when you're talking about really like a Caribbean population, 
which means an Afro-Caribbean population as well, right? And and it's a it's predominantly light-skinned actors and it's a big splashy Disney thing and it's like on every screen everywhere. It's like the first big release of the summer. And I think people are basically fairly saying, well, this is the challenge when you get so few shots, right? That you don't end up with really broad representation so that mm. that one big thing has to be the thing to all people all the time. Really why like representation puts a lot of pressure on every individual piece of uh, a new movie or new show when really like diversity is a feature of our world. And what that means is even within certain cultural groups, there's a massive diversity of experience. So what what I get to see on Seed and Spark is a massive diversity of experience in every single like cultural identity, gender identity, self-expression. Like we we get to see that at its roots, right? And what we hope is that the industry is growing to actually receive that breadth of meaningful diversity of experience, right? As opposed to the sort of like, oh, you got your like Latin movie and now we're going to move on to the black movie and then we'll do the queer movie. And then each one of those better embody everybody or else it has failed. And like, that's just such a failure of the system at large, right? And that's not, I'm not downplaying the importance of like the like fair criticism that's being levied at In the Heights. I'm just saying like, it, like the the pressure on every individual piece of quote unquote like representative content is too much when there's not enough of it to present the diversity of ex- like to contain the diversity of experiences like there is not one kind of grouchy white guy that has not been supremely and widely and broadly expressed in cinema every kind of grouchy white guy that can exist has been like thoroughly explored in cinema and television. Mm. The same is not true for like pretty much any other cultural experience, right? So um, so I think that's like, that's the next wave to me is like really appreciating the diversity of experiences. We're seeing just a ton of incredible AAPI storytellers um, come forward telling you know, queer stories and multi-generational stories and multicultural stories and and cross-cultural stories. And, you know, I, I just think like that's the wave that I'm seeing is people being like, hey, don't tell me how to represent my own experience just because I look a certain way or I present a certain way or I carry a certain identity. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's that intersectionality, too, that becomes so important. Um, I was curious, what is, you know, you talk about sustainable career. What does success look like for someone that's come through the Seed and Spark platform? For me, every project should build your career equity. And unfortunately, even like making a movie and selling it to a distributor, that that won't necessarily do it, right? Because then you have to go back and get the investors to invest in you again, and you have to get the distributors to buy into it again. And um, the truth is, if you're making stuff that you feel like are stories that have never been told before, that means nobody's ever distributed that kind of story before. Nobody else has ever built an audience for that thing before. So they're not any more expert than you are at that point, right? And so you're really... When you're, when you're participating in the sort of like, okay, I'm going to make this and then I hope I get picked, you're getting picked by people who are not necessarily any more qualified to speak to the audience that you really want to gather than you are. So for me, success is when creators 
really get sure-footed around how to talk to the audience they really want to reach about their project because they could take that forward to a distributor relationship. They could take that forward to um, you know, a, a TV pitch and say, no, I've really honed in on like, this is what the audience really responds to. This is what I really understand. And that is incredibly valuable. Like, like increases the value of your IP and all your IP going forward, right? The more you have a direct connection to your audience that you own. And like Issa Rae has this story starting with Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, which was not her first, but her third or fourth web series, which I don't think she gets enough. Like people love to tell the story of like, she made one web series and then it was insecure. And it was like, nay, sorry, friends, that is not how that happened. The amount of work (laughs) that went in that she put in to become who she is. Um, you know, Justin Simeon, who started with a, a crowdfunding campaign to make Dear White People, and was the voice speaking to this audience that not only informed his writing process, but also made him the only person who could really produce the marketing materials for the theatrical release campaign. Because, like, I think Lionsgate picked it up and, like, they would have messed up that like those marketing materials, like they had to hire him to direct those or like they would have gotten it completely wrong. So you just, you make yourself indispensable to the whole process, the more you become the expert in how to talk to your audience. So to me, that's what success looks like is when people are like, no, I know how to talk to this audience. I've really activated them. I know how to grow this. And so I can take that skill set to a distributor and be like, here are my partnerships. Here are the festival relationships I built. Here's my mailing lists because I've actually heard several stories of distributors buying movies in the room because somebody was like, here's my spreadsheet of all the assets I've put together and all the relationships that I built. And they're like, Oh, you just did the really hard part of my job for me. So now you demand a higher price, right? That's, that's to me like that sure footedness with your audience. Um, so that you're really the expert in how to reach out that, that success to me. I love that. So you touched on earlier that, you know, Seed and Spark was born out of the need as a producer. So what are you working on as a producer these days? How convenient you ask me, Kaylee. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I am currently producing a feature documentary about the Equal Rights Amendment, um, or more importantly, the struggle to get the Equal Rights Amendment enshrined in the Constitution. Most people do not know. We don't have one. You were the first person to tell me that. You and Sarah Adina Smith took me to lunch and told me and my sister that. And we were like, I'm sorry, what? Yep. Um, and I have a feeling this movie will be uh, a lot of people's first introduction to this fact. Um, but the interesting thing about this, I mean, I'd never produced a feature documentary before. It's the hardest thing I have ever done by far. Also, because the mm. story is evolving so fast all the time that figuring out the right place to end it has been a challenge. I think we finally know Um, and uh, we were, you know, we were of course hoping to have the like crown and glory of the ERA being enshrined in the constitution and our contacts on the inside are like, are you crazy? It's years. It's like, even still with the triumphs, it's years away. So, uh, we're not going to wait. Um, we want to get this story out and make sure that people who might be spurned to vote in say the 2022 midterm, um, might see this film and it make them think about what kind of pressure they're putting on their local representatives. Um, Mm. I also have in development a spoken word climate change dance piece. Cool. Which is awesome. I'm I'm getting to bring together some artists I've been dying to work with for years. Um, This incredible poet 
and writer Musa Okwanga, one of the original Alvin Ailey dancers, um, and uh, Adrian Hurd, and some other incredible movement artists. So that's what I'm working on. You know, as two co-founders and as two female co-founders, we certainly hit a lot of challenges, both as entrepreneurs and in the industry alike. Um, you know, Kaylee and I were often when starting Series Fest, you know, you two young girls can't do this. Um, and and always it was the girls and the, you know, the, we ran into a lot of that. And I was curious, did you have any kind of challenges um, being a female entrepreneur um, and or in the industry? Oh, yeah. I mean, yes. And I think I'm an interesting beneficiary of a certain kind of tokenism that is afforded to white women almost exclusively. Um, but I didn't know that's what it was early on. I was like very early, honestly, in my understanding of um, some of these broader kind of racial and gender bias challenges. Early on, I mean, I, I'm sure you all have been through this, but um, I wore a wedding ring to all of my investment meetings, even though I was not yet married. Um, had a lot of, smart, you know, arrived to a meeting with someone who leads one of our most like darling distribution companies and he didn't have a shirt on. Like what? there's been a few, there's been a few over the years. I fundraised twice while pregnant. People said some of the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my life to me. Um, like I was seven months pregnant. And at the end of this investment meeting, he was like, so I heard maybe you're eating for two now. And I was like, Bob, this is not a burrito. I did not just have a big lunch. <laughs> I am seven months pregnant. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, sure. And when I first started Seed and Spark, there was one other woman building a tech company in entertainment at that time. That was um, Sheila Andreen from IndieFlix. And she was up in Seattle, right? So so she, she kind of got to like do her own thing. But also, I think, you know, suffered some of that like like location bias that we were still having. Now that sounds ridiculous. Like, oh, you could be anywhere. But I was just getting invited to all of these panels and events to speak because they were like, oh, shoot, it's all men. We should invite that one. She's new. Uh, and um, that's like a perfect example of the problem with the business is like, I would show up and I'd be like, hi, I'm your diversity and let's talk about what a problem that means we have, right? Mm. Um, because, I, you know, I was like, all right, well, if you're going to let me in the room, then I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Um, and, and I think that I, that was a huge advantage, honestly, to be let in those rooms and then to be able to start the conversations I really wanted to have. Because once you open that Pandora's box, you can't shut it, you know, Um so yeah, I, I, I have a lot of complicated feelings about it because I had some really terrible experiences and, and the experience of, of bias when it's personal and palpable or the experience of like somebody getting creepy when you're like, dude, I'm just trying to do my fucking job. Like, that's the worst. Um, and I got a lot of advantages out of it that I'm very cognizant of have to do with being a well-spoken white woman. Um, and it's really important to me to make sure that those advantages are now made available for everybody, um, going forward. Um, and I know that's something that you all think about a lot too, in the way that you program your panels, the way that you program your festival. Um, it's like, 
yes, we, we as white women sit at the intersection of the oppressor and the oppressed. That's a complicated intersectional identity also. Um, and we have to take as much ownership over the things that were hard as over the privileges that we've been afforded that have gotten us here as well. And, um, yeah, so it's like, a, it's a complicated story to kind of look back and tell, you know, that absolutely. I remember the moments when I was like, you are just discounting me because I am a young woman or I'm pregnant or whatever. And also the times when I'm like, I am only in the room because you needed to put a woman in here and thank you. I'm going to take it. Well, you've mentioned a few times that you're a mom and people have made comments just when you were pregnant. Is there any advice you could give to moms out there who are working and are, because you're, you know, you're a creative, you're running a company, you're an entrepreneur, you're a producer, you're doing all this stuff. So what's like the biggest piece of advice for moms, expecting moms, anyone who's thinking about becoming a mom? This is really hard. This is really hard because we live in a society that uh, doesn't give a shit about caretakers of any kind, um, is I would say actively hostile <laughs> to caretakers. And that is a tremendous threshold to overcome, full stop. I am incredibly lucky. I have a super supportive partner who when the pandemic started, he stopped working and he has been full-time dad for the last 16 months. Um, before that, we had full-time childcare and that was the only way that I was, you know, able to do the things. I was making negative money every month <laughs> in order to pay for childcare. Like, I don't have great news about some of this stuff. Like, it is right. really, really hard. And... Mm -hmm. um, these are all things that I wanted to do and I'm stubborn as shit. And I was like, I'll be damned if anybody tells me I can't do them. Um, but I don't really think there's anything like having it all. I don't think that's a thing. I think it's like, what, what do you want the like most important components of your life to be? And what are like, what are you willing to endure for some of that because like we live in a, in a really, really challenging society to be a parent and a career person. Mm. Um, especially as a, especially as a, um, like as a biological mother, brutal, but as any kind of parent also brutal. Um, it really asks that you, you know, offload your parenting or you, um, put your own physical and mental well-being aside. And, you know, so the best that I can do is like, try to build a company where there's space for people to form their lives the way they want to, whether that's big creative goals or big family goals or big family and creative goals, whatever, and hope that they carry that forward into the things that they start or the next things that they do. Cause I, I feel like in this case, I can only affect what I can touch. Right. Mm. And uh, I don't want to pretend like this is sunshine and roses. This has been the hardest time of my entire life. Um, and uh, there have definitely been times where I'm like, no, I don't, I don't think I can do it, but it's too late because there's a big payroll and there's babies that also have to be fed and I'm trying not to get divorced. So I need to be a good wife. Like there are times when you're like, no, the demands are actually too much. This is ridiculous. I can't do it. When my mom got sick this fall, I was like, okay, cool. So now I'm firmly a part of the sandwich generation, right? That's caretaking in both directions. Um, and, uh, it's really hard. And my only antidote is community is just building really powerful relationships around me 
that serve us all collectively. So I, I don't know that it's, it's mutualism, right? It's mutual aid. Like that's what we've figured out. Like the society that doesn't give a shit about us, well, mutual aid will fill the gaps. And you have to figure out what mutual aid also looks like, like in your daily life, if you're going to do it all is how I feel. And honestly, like nobody in the history of the universe was ever laying on their deathbed. Like, God, I wish I worked more. Right. So when you talk about priority and focus, it's like, I'm trying to spend all of my time focused on the impact. Hmm. I don't want to spend any more time on the work to get to the impact. No, I want to know like, what is the impact of the work today, tomorrow, the next day. Right. Um, and I think that, that has been helpful for me to like climb out of the pit of burnout and to just say like, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not satisfied to spin my wheels even for one day. Like I have to know how we're advancing the impact every single day. Um, and that like, that has helped a little bit. It's like, I, I will, I will be very interested to, to look back on my life and think about um, impact. I'm, I'm less interested in like how much work did I do that? You know, like that's not, that's not really the point. And I think also once you have kids that that calculus really changes as well. Um, that like, uh, there was a time in my life when like, I loved working all the time. It felt so meaningful and fun and exciting and all of those things. And now I'm like, Nope, 5 PM I'm done. I'm cooking dinner for my family. I'm doing bedtime. And then I have to go face plant in the bed because nobody has any more energy. You know, somebody invited me to a dinner at 8 p.m. What? Uh, Who eats dinner at 8? Yeah, exactly. That's the question I asked. And I was like, if you have methamphetamines, I might be able to show up. But otherwise, (laughs) I don't think it's possible. Oh, my God. I love that. I love uh, what you're saying about impact. And I think that even goes back to what you were saying about building community and um, for anyone who's, you know, trying to do a a campaign to raise money or whether it's later in the process for pilots and creativity, like to really focus and like take the ego out of it and be like, yes, I want to show how great I am as a writer, director, actor, whatever it is, producer. I want people to see my work because I want to get hired. But if you really go back to like, why am I telling this story? What is my impact? And how do I make that impact? Like if I have a specific story to tell, who is my audience? Why do I need to tell them? And what's my impact? Like, I think that's so much more empowering than going like, I need to go raise $50,000 for a short film so I can get into a festival, so I can get an agent, so I can go do something of impact. Like it starts with, I need to make impact with each story yeah. I go to I mean, tell. Thank you. That's so beautifully put because the the second, the latter is, has so many barriers between you and actually doing something meaningful. When, when you're connecting directly with your audience on a day-to-day basis, and that's kind of part of the way you go to work, you might be having impact every single day, yeah. right? As opposed to that's right. all the time you spend raising the money, right? All the time you spend making the thing, all the time you spend trying to get the thing in front of the right people, all the time in between that and when they, the lawyers sign the papers and then they finally actually release it. And then do they actually release it to the people who want to see it? Like that's so many barriers between you and actually connecting with the community that you're trying to speak to. And we don't need to do that anymore. We have these fucking devices that won't leave us alone, but that also (laughs) give us access to being able to build that community every day. And I think, you know, um, for me, I didn't want a B2B career. 
a business to business career. I don't want to make something just to sell it to a distributor. Like that's not my audience. I don't think that festivals and distributors are my audience. And I think a Mm. lot of creators still are kind of like, Oh, it's the agents and managers who are my audience. It's the, um, it's the distributors and the TV producers who are my audience. It's not, it's not like, yes, there are people who can make a career in that kind of B2B space they all look pretty similar. I don't know if anybody's noticed that. Those people who have those like really sex, successful, sexy B2B careers, that's a pretty homogenous group because there's a lot of pattern mm-hmm. matching in that. So yeah. those of us who are trying to actually tell new stories, we have to go to the audience to get to sell into the business in the first place, which is why like I got bored with the business and we built a whole corporate side because I was like, I'm tired of fighting with entertainment. Yeah. to like actually really care about the impact and do impact well. Well, it's amazing what you built. It has had tons of impact. We know for a lot of creators who have used your platform and continue to use your platform. Um, before we go, I have one last question for you, which we're asking everybody. Nervous. Um, nervous. Don't be nervous. It's fun. It's a fun question. <laughs> okay. If you could have worked on any television show in history, what would it have been and what would you have done on it? That is a really hard and really interesting question. Um, Well, I think I would have made a very capable stand-in for Punky Brewster uh, because (laughs) I spent my entire life getting told that I look like her and we're like roughly the same age. So I think I could have been a stand-in for Punky Brewster. Um, Do you guys remember the show... um, it was called The Rock or Rock, no. R-O-C. Um, it was about like a Baltimore guy. Um, and towards the end of the season, they were doing live shows. And I remember hmm. they had a season finale that was live with a studio audience. And it was super dramatic, but it was theater. And mm. when they finished, it was this like incredible emotional impact And then they allowed the audience to start applauding. And then the actors kind of came out of their like reverie. And I remember I was like 10 or 11 years old and I like exploded with tears because I was like, that was all happening in real time. So for me, it might have been like a show like Rock that taped live to studio audience that had both elements of comedy and drama. Um, I don't know. I would have been running around behind the scenes somewhere. (laughs) <laughs> I love it. Like that, what an interesting, great answer. That's my love language is live mm. theater. And, um, and so the, the, the intersection, do you know what I mean? When like you watch a performance on television and then you realize that whole thing has been live the whole time. It's why like the Tonys are so unbelievable. Cause you're like, no, sorry. That was a human who did all of that without stopping. Right. And singing and blocking and all of that and all the camera moves that had to go into it. Like the whole thing is so gorgeously orchestrated. Like, yeah, that's that's the shit that really um, I cry every time. Love that. Well, thank you so very much, Emily, for joining us. Um, It's so great to get to speak with you um, again and hear all the just ways Seed and Spark keeps transforming and becoming, you know, just continuing to change and make impact on the space and on communities. And we're so grateful for you to take the time with us. Yes, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really lovely to get a chance to see your faces, hear your voices, and just 
be in community with my women for a little bit. Thank you for tuning in for today's episode. Series Fest is a nonprofit organization and our work would not be possible without our incredible board of directors, staff, and partners who make programs like this podcast possible. We have ongoing competitions, initiatives, and mentorship programs year round. So please check us out at seriesfest.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to stay up to date on announcements. Edited by Neil Trulio with original music by Adam Westbrook.